Well, hey, good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good. Hey, it's good to see all of you here. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 10. We're going to be in John 10 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, as always, we have people coming down the aisles right now who will get you a copy of God's Word. Just raise your hand. We'll get a Bible to you. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep that as our gift to you. But we're going to be in John 10, uh, verses 11 through uh, 21 this morning. So you're definitely going to want a Bible open. And as you're turning to John 10, I just want to start by thanking all of you for just being gracious and flexible with us last weekend as we had to close our in-person gatherings because of bad weather. Uh, Those are never fun decisions to make, believe me. There is not much in the world I enjoy less than preaching to an empty room and a camera looking at me. I'd way rather be hanging out with all of you, but we were just getting reports that more and more waves and bands of really bad weather was coming in, and we wanted to make a decision that was uh, thoughtful and wise, and um, we just did the best we could. I also um, want to thank our worship and content team for being able to throw on a service on very, very short notice. I called Taylor at uh, 12 on Thursday. And I'm like, I just keep hearing that things are getting worse and worse. Let's maybe get a service ready just in case we have to. And I'm like, I know that's a lot. I'm sorry I'm asking this. And he's like, no, totally, we should do it. And uh, he and Trevor and Carolyn and Emo and Peter and our team, they really worked hard to make it so that we could still gather together even online and continue our study in John. And I just hope you guys know how spoiled you are by all of them and their love for you and love for the Lord. So thank you for um, just being gracious and flexible. Um, If you weren't able to watch with us, we're in the middle of our study of the book of John. And John 9 and 10, it's really interesting. John dedicates two chapters in his gospel to one event. And so the fact that John is giving this much time to one moment means that we should pay attention. We should understand what's going on and what John's trying to communicate. And I don't know if you remember what happened in John 9, but Jesus is going to the temple and he sees a man who was born blind. And his disciples ask, why is this guy blind? Is it his parents' fault or is it his fault? And Jesus is like, it's neither. You guys aren't getting it right. He is blind so that God's glory might be revealed and displayed in his life. And then Jesus heals him. And he tells him to go to the temple and present himself. Well, he goes to the temple and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, rather than being excited that this man has been healed, rather than rejoicing in what God has done, rather than being thankful for Jesus, they get really angry that he was healed on the Sabbath. And they start to question the man and interrogate him. Were you actually blind or were you just faking it? And he's like, dude, you've known me. My entire life, I've sat outside the temple and have begged for a living because I could not see. This is me. I was really blind and I was healed. And then they're like, well, say that God healed you, but not that Jesus did. And the blind guy's like, no, I was blind. Then I met Jesus and now I can see. Like, what more do you want from me? So then they bring his parents in and they interrogate him and they end up kicking him out of the temple because they don't like his answers. And the man comes back to Jesus and he gives his life to Jesus. And uh, Jesus, hearing that this man who has been disqualified from entering the temple his entire life for reasons that are not his fault, when he finds out they've kicked him out again, he gets really angry. And chapter 10 is somewhere between a teaching and a rant where Jesus is drawing very clear lines to say, this is who I am, and this is what following me looks like. This is what's actually happening. And remember last week, Jesus said, I am the door. And what he said is, is only through me, only if you believe in me will you find salvation. I am your passport to salvation, and in me you will find safety and freedom in your life right now. So Jesus last week lays out who he is, 
This week, Jesus is going to talk about how he can offer us these things. This week is all about the how. So look at verse 11. Look what he says. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and leaves and the sheep flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life and I take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. Then there was again division among the Jews because of these words. And many of them said, he is a demon. It is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? All right, church, here's the big idea this morning. If you're taking notes, it's this. It's that the cross was always firmly planted in the mind of Jesus. The cross was always central in the mind of Christ. He is thinking about his death, even as he heals a man born of blindness. So have you ever been in a situation where maybe you're watching a video or you're watching a movie and you know the ending of how it's going to play out already, but everyone else around you, it's the first time they're seeing it and they don't know what's going to happen? Have you ever been there before? Um, I remember about 15 years ago, I had just gotten married. I was in my first year of marriage and uh, we had moved to Orlando to take a job. I was a youth pastor there and uh, Mary and I decided to go on a date night. And we went out to dinner and a movie. And we saw a movie, again, came out 15 years ago, called Marley and Me. And it's a uh, story uh, about a family who gets married, or a young couple who gets married in Michigan and then moves to Florida to take a job. And then they immediately buy a, a yellow lab named Marley. And the dog is terrible, but it ends up becoming their like, greatest friend. And it just kind of like details the life of this dog through a lot of funny stories. Well, the wild thing about sitting in that movie theater is Mary and I were a young couple who'd got married in Michigan. And we had just moved to Florida to take a job. And we had just bought a yellow lab who was terrible. Ours was named Riley. So we're sitting in the movie theater and it's like, we are watching the story of our lives right now. This is super weird. Well, I had read or someone had told me that the movie ends with Marley getting old and Marley dying. And it's kind of a sad ending. And by the way, if you're like, spoiler alert, the movie's 15 years old. That's not on me, that's on you, right? Like you've had plenty of time. The dog dies, I'm sorry. So uh, I know going into the movie that the dog is going to die, but my wife didn't. Mary had no idea. And looking back, I probably should have warned her. That would have been like the kind thing to do, but I didn't. And uh, I remember with about 25 minutes left, Mary looks at me and her eyes are like as big as saucers. And they're like, they're going to show this dog die, aren't they? (laughs) Right. And again, newlywed Cal rising to the occasion, super gracious and kind. My response was, what do you think was going to happen, babe? (laughs) Right. Not my best moment. I will own that. I've gotten better as I've been married longer. Well, Mary, for like the last 25 minutes of that movie, is like ugly snot crying. Like she is weeping because we just have this puppy that's a yellow lab, and now they're showing a yellow lab. Like she is destroyed. And I am thinking to myself, man, this date night took a weird turn on me, right? Where did this go wrong? But like I I knew it was coming, so I was prepared, but my wife wasn't. 
Okay, Jesus lived every day of his life in that same spot. He knew that his life was leading to Calvary. He knew that he was going to the cross and he would try to explain this to people. He would try to tell his disciples and his disciples, they either couldn't understand it or they just refused to accept it. I mean, even the night when Jesus was betrayed and was arrested, he tells his disciples, it's happening tonight. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to the cross. And Peter's like, no, you're not. I will never let that happen to you. I will never lead your side. They're not taking you. And Jesus is like, Peter, what are you talking about, bro? You're going to deny knowing me three times before the night is over. Look how he purposefully turns the conversation towards death in verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Right, And what's interesting is, is in the context, he's just healed a man who was blind. Talking about death doesn't make sense here. He could have said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his sheep sight. That would have made sense in context of what was going on. He could have said, I'm the good shepherd. I heal my sheep or I love my sheep or I care for my sheep. But that's not where he goes. He turns this thing towards what makes me good is I am going to die. I will offer this man and everyone else salvation because I will lay down my life. And so what I want to do with our time together this morning is I want to pull out four observations from Jesus' teaching, and I'm going to use that as a platform to dig into some very real specific application for our lives. Here's the first thing. We need to understand that Jesus knew that Jesus had to die. Jesus had to die. And we need to get into some theology here, but Jesus's mission when he came to earth was to die on the cross for our sin and to raise again, defeating sin and death. He needed to be our substitutionary atonement. And here's why, because our sin requires that someone dies. This is how God established our relationship with him all the way back in Genesis two, when he created Adam. Do you remember God creates Adam? He places him in the garden. He, he says, you have ownership and authority over everything I created, and it was good. And then in Genesis 2, look what he says. He says, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So he establishes this rule that says, if you don't listen to me, if you disobey my commands, if you rebel against me, if you sin against me, the wages of those sin is death. The punishment for rebelling against God is death. Blood has to be shed, right? Paul lays this out in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God is laying out the construct. This is how we relate to each other. Right? This is why God immediately establishes a sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Adam and Eve's kids, after they sin, Cain and Abel, they've got to make sacrifices to God because in order for God to have relationship, there has to be atonement, punishment, payment for sin. And for a while, he would allow that to be lambs or animals that would sacrifice in place for man's sin. And see, I know what some of you are thinking right now. Some of you are looking at me being like, I don't like that construct. Why couldn't have God have made it less severe? Like, like, why does it have to be death? This seems harsh. If it didn't have to be like this, why did God establish that? Well, the reason you're thinking that right now is because you and I, we minimize sin all of the time in our world and in our life, don't we? 
Like we are so surrounded by it every day. It infiltrates our heart and it's easy for us to be like, man, sin's not that big a deal. Everybody lies. Everybody has thoughts that, that are impure that they shouldn't have. Everyone says things that they regret. Everyone's dishonest. We tend to be like, man, I'm doing better than most. I'm a pretty good person and I'm not perfect, but it's not that big of a deal. But here's the thing. When we stop focusing on us, but focus on how amazing and great and wonderful God is, our sin, our rebellion becomes way more offensive. Jesus never minimized sin. God does not minimize our sin Jesus' eyes are wide open to what our sin would cost him. And he knew he would be the sacrifice that would pay that debt once and for all. In Romans 6, Paul writes, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Look at verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Right? One of my favorite passages of scripture in the whole Bible is Hebrews 1, verses 3 and 4. This is the writer of Hebrews just bragging on how awesome Jesus is. He says this. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Then after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Do you know what it means when it says that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty? That Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. You know what that means? It means he's sitting because his work is done. That he defeated sin once and for all. He rose from the dead. He, he purchased our forgiveness. He gives us salvation. He goes to heaven and he's done working. Now he gets to be glorified and elevated. His work is done. And here's what's amazing about that. It's because our hope for our salvation rests in the finished and completed work of Christ. It's done. It's over. He's victorious. He's won. So our hope is not in how we're doing, but the fact that Christ perfectly covered our sin. He had to die, and he knew it. Next thing you need to see is that Jesus chose to die. He made that choice himself. Look at verse 17. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Jesus is saying, I will go to the cross, and I will lay my life down because I want to. This is my decision. This is my choice. I have the authority to make this call and I will do it. There's an idea or a phrase that, or that criti critics of Christianity love to criticize the gospel with. And it stems from German higher criticism in the 1600s. But what they love to say is that what Christianity is or what the cross is, is cosmic child abuse. And, and here's the idea. If God the Father sent God the Son who was innocent, and he killed him, put him on a cross, made him suffer and die when he was innocent for other people's sins, then, then God is this angry father who's abusive, and he's not good, and he shouldn't be loved, and he shouldn't be trusted. And they say the cross isn't a beautiful thing. It's actually an awful thing. It's cosmic child abuse. And they love that phrase because it's flashy and it's catchy, but it's extremely uh, intellectually lazy and it doesn't hold any weight. Here's why. Three quick reasons. First of all, Jesus wasn't a child. He was a grown man. He is in his 30s and he's saying, I know what is required of me and I am willing to do this. I have the authority to say, no, I don't want to. 
He didn't have to die, but he's saying, I am choosing to. I have the authority to take my life, and that is what I'm going to do. He is not being forced. He is not handcuffed to that cross. He made the choice to do it. The second thing is, is it demonstrates a basic misunderstanding of the Trinity. Jesus was fully God, and his will was not in conflict with God the Father's. There is no disunity in that relationship. There is no uh, distrust in that relationship. That relationship has always for eternity been perfect. Their wills are aligned. God the Father is not fighting with God the Son when Jesus goes to the cross. And then again, in Philippians 2, guess what we're told about God the Father? It says, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That doesn't sound like an angry, abusive father, does it? That sounds like a good, loving father who gave the ultimate price, who gave what he loved most to purchase our relationship back to him. This was a move of unbelievable love and Jesus was a willing, choosing participant. So I'm re-watching an old HBO TV series. Some of you may have seen it. Um, it's called The Band of Brothers. Uh, many of people think it's the greatest TV series to ever be written, and it's only 10 episodes long, and it's all about it follows a company of soldiers right after uh, we invaded Normandy in World War II. And what's interesting is before every episode, they actually interview actual World War II veterans who were in that area, in that company, and they just ask them what it was like, and you kind of hear these stories. And I was watching it this week, and they were interviewing a veteran, and the guy goes, when we were attacked at Pearl Harbor, he goes, I'm from a small town in the South. He had a nice Southern draw. And he goes, I'm from a small town in the South, and when we were attacked, every single young man in our town applied to join the army the next day. He goes, in fact, there were three men in our town who were disqualified because of health reasons. They weren't allowed to join, and they committed suicide because they were so devastated they couldn't go fight for our country. And I remember watching that and thinking to myself, that generation truly is the greatest generation in our history, aren't they? Like the honor and respect I have for those men to be like, I'm going to go lay my life down on the line and I'm going to go enter into hell in Europe to save our country. It's like, man, my generation, we make videos on TikTok, right? Congratulations us. Like, I don't think we'd respond the same exact way. We, we get angry over everything. He's like, no, we have to go. Okay, that was Jesus. I am going because someone has to save these people who we love. He's the good shepherd. He laid down his life for his sheep. Hebrews 12 says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. I love this. It was for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He endured the cross with joy so that we could be reconciled to him. And again, that leads us to our third thing we need to see. It's this. It's that Jesus was motivated by love. Jesus was motivated by love. Look what he says, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. He, he's saying, listen, there's a difference between someone who owns the sheep and those who are just the hired hands who are being contracted out. He, he goes, the workers, they're not going to face danger when the wolf comes because it's not worth it 
to them, but he's like, I'm not like them. I own the sheep. They are mine. I love them. You're valuable to me. And there is nothing that I won't do to protect them. Jesus is motivated by love. All right, do me a favor. Just think for a moment in your head. If you could define like the top three characteristics of what makes a truly great friend, what would they be? Just think about it. Like in the type of best friend that you want or the type of friend that you have, what are the top three characteristics? Trustworthy. Okay. Wow. Out loud answer. Wasn't expecting that, but yeah, trustworthy is one of them. Um, Here's what I would say. If I could get a mic and have you all come up and give answers, I bet most of you would say, I want someone who's there for me when it's hard. I want someone that I can rely on, that's dependable, that when life is difficult and things are scary and things are ugly, he's or she are going to show up. Church, look at me. Jesus is that friend to us. He says, when the wolf comes, I'm not leaving. I'm not abandoning you. I'm not forsaking you. He goes, I am entering into death, into danger, so that you may be saved. He's like, I am not going anywhere. Jesus tells another parable where he says, I'm the type of shepherd that leaves the 99 for the sake of the one who's lost. So even when you're struggling and even when you don't know what's going on, and even when you've wandered away, I will track you down because I love you so much. Right? It's this idea that, listen, I don't know what we're entering into this next year. I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know what 2024 holds, but I know the one who holds tomorrow, and I know the one who will not leave us no matter what we face. I was reading uh, some of uh, a book by Paul Tripp this week, and he made a really interesting point. He goes, I think one of Christians' biggest problems are we are unable to truly grasp how amazing heaven is. He goes, so much of our life would be so much better if we truly understood how amazing heaven was. But our minds can't comprehend perfection because all we know is sin and brokenness. But he goes, if we could just even go to heaven for five minutes, forget dying on the cross. The fact that Jesus would leave that place and enter into our world and enter into our brokenness, if we rightly understood heaven, we would understand how great of a move of love that that was, that there isn't anything we wouldn't do for Jesus. Listen, he loves us with a love that is perfect, and he would do it all again to redeem you. This is the greatest love the world has ever known. Then here's the fourth thing we need to see. It's this. It's that Jesus' mission was always bigger than Israel, right? Israel wanted a political Messiah, but Jesus' mission was bigger. Look at verse 16. I love this. He goes, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Um, Do me a favor. If you take notes in your Bible, underline that I have other sheep that are not in this fold. That's a really important statement. You know why? Um, Because I love it when there's places in the Bible where we see Jesus talk specifically about us. Do you know he's talking about us there? He's saying, listen, I have sheep that that are not of this fold, meaning not of Israel, but that my death, it's not going to be just for this country. It's going to offer salvation to the entire world. And there's going to be people throughout the world that will come and worship me and be saved by me and loved by me and follow their good shepherd. We are part of this other fold that he has brought in to his family where there is one Lord and one King. Church, this is why Christianity is different than other world religions. Most other world religions, they're locked in by region or race or ethnicity. 
It means they exist in one part of the world and the people who believe in it, they look the same and they usually speak the same language. That's not true of Christianity. All over the world, in Africa, in Europe, in Asia, in South America, in North America, there are people that say that Jesus is the good shepherd, that he is the door to salvation, life, and freedom. He's saying, my mission is bigger than what you could ever imagine, right? The last thing Jesus tells his disciples before he ascends into heaven is go and make disciples of all nations. This passage is important because here you have Jesus himself saying, I have come for the entire world, not just Israel. Okay, but here's where I want to focus the rest of our time together. Look at verse 14. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. What does that mean? Look at verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So can I ask you a question? What makes you a sheep? What makes you a follower of Jesus? Well, here's what it is. You know him, and you listen to him. So here's the big question I want to focus the rest of our time on. It's this. Will you listen to the shepherd's voice? Jesus is saying, the thing that distinguishes my sheep from those which are not my sheep is they listen to me. They hear me, they follow me, they know me, and they listen. And listen, some in this story outright reject Jesus. Look at verse 19. It says, and again, there were division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he is a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Right? They're like, you are not the Messiah. You are not God. You are not Lord. I reject everything you have to say. And listen, in our society today, there are many that reject Jesus. He is not God. He is not Lord. The Bible is not true. He is not worth following. I'm going to live for myself. I'm rejecting Jesus. And look at me. People who believe that are wrong, but I respect their logic. And when I say they're wrong, here's what I mean. They have very real factual historical questions that they don't have answers to. They might not realize it, but, but the, the uh, history is on our side. The testimony of history is on the side of Jesus Christ. Always has been, always will be. But what I can respect is they don't believe him, so they don't follow him. Here's what I can't understand. There are so many people who say, no, I do believe in Jesus. I believe that he was the son of God. I believe that he rose from the dead, that he died on the cross for my sin. I believe that he ascended into heaven and I believe that he is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. But practically, I'm still not going to listen to him and I'm gonna do whatever I want with my life. Like that's what I can't figure out because here's what you're saying. You're saying, hey, the one whose name is greater than every other name, King of kings, Lord of lords, the one who spoke the universe into existence, the one who holds all things together by the word of his power, the one who was and is and is to come, who is ruling and reigning. I'm not going to listen to that voice. That's insane. Do me a favor. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's insane. All right. And look at me. We do that all the time, don't we? We do it all the time. I've often thought to myself, if I could go back to Moody Bible Institute and just teach a chapel, I think the chapel I would teach is, here's seven things they don't tell you about ministry that you're going to want to know before you go into ministry. And uh, one of the things on that list is, as a pastor, the majority of your conflict, the majority of your exhaustion, the majority of your fights are trying to convince people who say they believe in Jesus to actually follow Jesus. 
Because it's like, yeah, I, I know what God's word says and I know what Jesus wants from me in regards to my marriage and how I organize my finances and what I hold on to and what I'm living for, but I'm just not gonna do it. I'm gonna do me. Listen, we live in a culture, we have to acknowledge this, that there is something about being America where there's this spirit of I'm an American, I'm free. No one tells me what to do, right? That mentality is incompatible with being a follower of Jesus because Jesus says, my sheep listen to me. They hear my voice and they follow. Like, you know there's a difference between hearing and listening. Will you listen to the shepherd's voice? So as I kind of start to wrap up, I want to talk about here's three ways we know whether or not we're listening. And I want you to ask yourself some hard questions. Be honest with yourself right now. Here's the first. I know I'm listening to the voice of the good shepherd when my heart and mind aren't clogged up by distraction. When my heart and mind aren't clogged by distraction. Again, can we be honest at church for a moment? How quickly are we, like the song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And like I'll find in my heart where it's like, man, it's been two or three weeks and I don't remember really spending time with the Lord in prayer. I'm trying to live by my own strength and my own wisdom and my own power. And, and, and I'm trying to, to, to do the right thing and be the right person, but it's all on me. Or it's like, man, I'm so distracted by what's happening in my life or my circumstances, or I'm so motivated by other things that, that it's like, man, my mind and heart are just clogged up and I'm missing the most important thing, which is God. How can you use me? How can you love me? How can I experience your love? How can I be a, a blessing to you? How can I worship you? How can I glorify you even? Even today. Um, church, we need to be careful about turning our wants into needs. Our hearts and minds get really, really distracted when wants in our lives become needs. Throw up the next slide. I had a friend text this to me this week, and it says, hey, it's crazy that it's already January 45th, isn't it? And the idea is this, man, winter's long, right? It feels like this month is dragging. And the reason I show that with you is there's this crazy thing that happens to Michiganders, right? We're, we're past happy winter, we're now in sad winter. Christmas is over and it's just cold outside. And we get this thing where it's like, man, I need to be warm, right? I need to see the sun. Do you know that in the first 360 hours of January, there were less than four hours of sunlight? And it's like, what is wrong? I need to see the sun or I need it to be spring break or I need to go on this vacation or I need it to be summertime again. Listen, you don't need any of that. Everything you actually need, you've been given in Jesus Christ. Guess what we need? We need to be in right relationship with the God that created us. Jesus has accomplished that for us. We need to be forgiven for our sins. Jesus has accomplished that for us and his work is done. He is sitting down right now. We need to know with certainty that we have eternity in perfect relationship with God and other believers, that when we die, that we are going to heaven and we can have certainty because of Jesus. The sun, it's a great want. Like I love the sun. It's not a bad thing. But when wants become needs, our hearts get distracted and we stop listening. Everything we need we've already been given. Okay, here's the next way I know I'm listening, is my sin affects me in the right ways. All right, church, here's the truth. We're all gonna fail. We're all gonna struggle with sin, and we are all going to commit sin, even today, probably even this week. Did you know that how we respond when we sin actually matters a lot? 
And I view it as a pendulum because I think we respond to sin in two really unhealthy ways. I think on one side of the pendulum is we deny it. I can't admit that I'm wrong. And when I do something wrong, I've got to justify it. I've got to make excuses. I can't humble myself and say, I know that that was wrong. So I become a defense lawyer and I get really, really good at explaining how all the bad things I do aren't actually my fault. Have you ever met someone who's like, they can never admit they're wrong? Not a lot of fun to be around, are they? Right? That's one way. The other side of the pendulum is we just live with a very secret, quiet, deep self-loathing. And it's like, man, I just hate myself and I am dirty and I am worthless and I can't do anything right. And how could God actually love me and accept me? And I don't think I have this Jesus or this Christianity thing right because I'm not good enough to be accepted by Christ. Here's what I'm going to argue. Both sides of those pendulum, they're actually two sides of the same coin. They're both failing to listen to Jesus and failing to believe the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is is that we are deeply known and loved. That God knew the mess he was entering into when he entered into relationship with us. And when we sin, again, our hope is in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So there is a way to deal with our sin in a way that is healthy and honors the Lord. You know what it is? It's saying, you know what, that was wrong. And I have sinned and I want to own that and I want to make that, you know, I want to confess that to God. I want to make that right if I've hurt someone. But that's not going to keep me on the sidelines and tank my self-confidence or tank my self-worth because my worth is hidden in Christ. And Jesus loves me and he values me and he cares for me so I can keep moving forward and walking in victory because my hope is not in my performance. It's always been in the performance of Jesus. How do you respond to the sin in your heart and your failure. I think a lot of us live on one of these ends of the pendulum. And listen, there is no joy or freedom or life on those sides. Are you listening to the good shepherd? Then here's the last one. It's that my life produces good fruit. My life produces good fruit. I talked about this a little bit last week, but we need to be very careful about inspecting the fruit that's coming out of our lives. In John 15, we're gonna look at this in a couple weeks, but he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me, he bears good fruit. So this idea of abiding, it's the same thing as listening or or, or drawing close to Jesus. And he's like, if you're near me, if you're listening to me, if you're following me, your life is going to produce good fruit, right? So here's the question. Are you a thankful person? Do you live life knowing, man, everything that I need, I've been given. So everything else in my life, it's just the cherry on top of the sundae. Or do your circumstances dictate your joy? Are you one of the people that when things are hard or difficult, there's a cloud that hangs over your life and you become miserable to be around because you're consumed with the negative? Or even in the midst of trial or persecution or fear, can you say, man, I know that God is with me and he is the friend that never leaves and I'm going to be okay because I am hidden in Christ and there's nothing that can separate me from the love of God. Are you a joyful person? Do you endure? Are you honest? Do you live with integrity? Are you the same person here as you are at work and at school and at home? Are you quick to forgive? Are you quick to show grace and show mercy? Because Jesus himself says the one thing that Christians do not have an excuse for is living with bitterness and unforgiveness because of what we have been forgiven. Or do we wear bitterness like a warm blanket? We need to have the discipline to ask myself, what 
is my life producing? Am I living with crutches? Are there addictions? Are there things that I'm saying practically I need other than Christ? So something cool that I learned this week, do you know that in the Hebrew, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, but that word good, it also has the connotation of being beautiful. So what he's saying is, is I'm not just good morally, like a good guy or a bad guy, but he is like, I am the shepherd, I am the leader, I'm the one who loves you, that will be beautiful and do for you what no one else can, right? And Jesus Christ himself says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. What makes the name of Jesus great and beautiful is that he is our good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. Let's pray. Dearly Father, God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for just the awesome love and truth that is in your scriptures this morning that we looked at. God, you are so amazing, so kind. God, may our minds ever be more consumed with your glory and with your name and with your promises. God, would you clear out the distractions that clutter our thoughts and minds? God, would we have the humility to ask ourselves difficult questions? May we be people quick to repent where we have fallen short. May we be people quick to forgive and show the grace and mercy that has been shown us. We love you and we need your help. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.